Welcome to Do We Know Things, a podcast where we examine things we think we know about sex. Content warning. This podcast will include discussions about contraception, reproductive rights, and medical treatments, including sterilization. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Lisa Don Hamilton, professor of psychology and sex educator. Today on Do We Know Things, what's the deal with IUDs? The intrauterine device, more commonly called the IUD, is the greatest invention known to humankind. Okay, that may just be my very subjective opinion. I'm a dedicated devotee to the IUD. It is the most effective method of preventing pregnancy that has ever been created, and it lasts up to 10 years. What's not to love? It's amazing. But the IUD was not always held in such high esteem. Specifically, when I began as a sex educator, I was taught that because of a problem with older forms of IUDs, that they had fallen out of favor. I was told that older IUDs had caused severe cases of pelvic inflammatory disease that in some cases led to death. I was assured that although they were not very popular as a method anymore uh, for contraception, modern IUDs were safe and that all of the past issues had been resolved. And, as with many things at that time, I believed it without doing my own research. But what is the story around IUDs? What was the issue in their sordid past that made them cause so much harm? I heard the rumors, but had never actually investigated what happened in the 70s when IUDs were apparently killing people. Stay tuned as I satisfy my curiosity about IUDs, figure out where they went wrong, and talk about why they are so right, for me at least. That's coming up on Do We Know Things. But first, on the last episode, I talked about UTIs. One of the things I wasn't able to find was any data on the link between non-penis-vagina sex and UTIs. I did come across a study by Jessica Wood and some of her colleagues looking at sex toy usage, hygiene, and vulvovaginal health. One of the variables they looked at was UTIs. The original paper didn't include data comparing UTI rates for people who use sex toys versus not, but I reached out to Dr. Wood to see if she could answer that question, and she could. She kindly looked at her old data and crunched the numbers for me. Dr. Wood said that there were no significant differences in the percentages of people who said they ever had a UTI when comparing regular sex toy users versus less regular users. About 65% of people in both groups had experienced UTIs at some point in the past. She also looked at people who had a UTI in the past six months, and again, the numbers were about the same for regular and non-regular users. Although this is just one study, it does seem to suggest that sex toys are not linked with more or less risk of UTIs than any other kinds of sex. Thanks so much to Dr. Wood for sharing that info with me. And now, on with today's show, exploring IUDs. The first words I typed when thinking about how to start today's podcast were, IUDs are basically magic, both literally and figuratively. The figurative part was the magic that comes from someone with a uterus being essentially freed from the risk of pregnancy for an extended period of time after one simple procedure. Control of one's reproductive life is truly life-changing for people who can get pregnant. 
This includes the ability to prevent pregnancy and, of course, also to terminate pregnancies when the person does not want to be pregnant. The importance of controlling fertility cannot be understated. These things are crucial for liberation and freedom. For many people, an IUD can be very liberating. It is inserted into your uterus, and then if all goes well, it serves as a fierce defender against pregnancy, and there's no daily pills needed. The literal part, I realized, was actually based on assumptions I had not looked into. At some point in my sex education journey, I learned that no one really understood how IUDs work, even though they're the most effective form of contraception. That it was like this mystery even to scientists. I filed that as magic in my brain. Of course, I knew there was likely a scientific explanation, but until someone figured that out, it was magic. As I typed the literal part of my first sentence, I realized I should probably check into the research on how IUDs work instead of just believing that it's some sort of wizardry. Various forms of shoving things into vaginas and uteruses have been used for centuries to prevent pregnancy, to varying degrees of success. But do we really not know how IUDs work? My belief that no one knows how an IUD works was mostly incorrect. A quick search on, a, on the scientific database PubMed, basically searching how do IUDs work, produced many, many results. However, a lot of the experimental studies were done on non-human animals, and there's also evidence that different species react differently to IUDs, so the response from one animal can't be assumed in another. And of course, it's much harder to do in-depth analyses on the uteruses of living humans, but there's enough correlational evidence to make some educated assumptions. So we do have a reasonable sense of how IUDs work, but maybe not all of the nitty-gritty details. There's a few components that contribute to how IUDs work. One of those is that putting a foreign object into your uterus can induce an inflammatory response that alters the uterine lining and also alters cervical fluid. Adding copper, which is what most North American IUDs have, also adds an extra sperm inactivating effect. IUDs work mostly by altering cervical fluids so that they are better at blocking sperm from getting in, and also by harming sperm so if they do get in, they don't work. There are also intrauterine systems, like the Mirena, that are plastic with hormones in them. Similar to the copper IUDs, they alter cervical fluids and uterine lining, but also suppress ovulation. I'll talk more about the different types of IUDs later. So if IUDs, as I now perceive them, are so magical, why did they fall out of favor for a while? It turns out that the falling out of favor was linked to a specific type of IUD called the Dalkin Shield. Before I delve into what went wrong with the Dalkin Shield, let's first talk about some of the many other versions of IUDs that came before it. Also, I should explain the anatomy that we're talking about here, since many people are unfamiliar. In my human sexuality classes, I give students a quiz about basic sex and anatomy things every year on the first day of class. One question I ask is, what is the cervix and where is it located? I am always shocked at how few people, most of whom have cervixes, do not answer this question or answer it very vaguely. The authors of Our Bodies, Ourselves would be horrified. So, at the top of the vaginal canal is the cervix. This is an adorable little pink donut with a tiny hole in the center. The uterus is roughly the size and shape of an upside down pear that sits on top of the cervix. For anything to get into the uterus, it has to go through the tiny hole in the cervix, which is called an os. 
This is where babies and menstrual blood come out of. The os diameter can vary from somewhere from one to eight millimeters throughout the menstrual cycle. And keep this small size in mind as I discuss the various shapes and sizes of things that were used as IUDs. During birth, the os expands dramatically and needs to be 10 centimeters in diameter before pushing can be begin during labor. And while the os can expand that much during birth, it is not a flexible material normally. Pre-IUD, there were a number of things inserted into the uterus and vagina that mostly attempted to block the cervix. But sperm is small and was often able to get around that blockade. The first versions of the modern IUDs in the 1900s used silkworm gut as their material. The gut was formed into a ring or other shape and inserted into the uterus. This method was only moderately successful, not in least part because it was also easily expelled from the uterus, so people would get them inserted and then they would come out not too long after. In the late 1920s, a researcher and physician, Dr. Ernst Grafenberg, took this idea of a ring, but wound thin coils of silver around the silkworm to try to make the rings more stiff. He also eventually moved past the silkworm and just used silver and other metals. The hope was that these Grafenberg rings, as they were called, would be less likely to be expelled. They were better, but still not great. The next major technological advancement was developed by a Dr. Oda from Japan in 1933. The Oda ring, also known as the Prasia ring, used the previous ring shape, but added more structure in the center of the ring so it would be more rigid and not fall out as easily. Because of attitudes towards contraception in Japan and because of World War II, the Oda ring did not reach the U.S. until after the war. While doing my research, I didn't come across any descriptions of how the people receiving these devices reacted. But some of the early IUDs were quite large, up to 2.5 centimeters across, although they were somewhat flexible. I can imagine it would be very painful to have one inserted into your 2 millimeter diameter os. You can see images of many versions of IUDs on a website for the Museum of Contraception and Abortion, muvs.org, in Austria. In the U.S., the attitude of researchers and many physicians towards the IUD was mostly hostile from basically the 30s to the 60s. During that entire time, there was only one paper published in Western journals uh, since Grafenberg's early studies in the 30s. IUDs were still being used in some places in the U.S., and new ones were being developed, but it was not being made public. The next advancement in IUD development that led to a resurgence of the research was the availability of plastics, um, and specifically plastics that could bend and return to their original shape easily. One of the first was the gynecoil, developed in 1960, that's basically a piece of plastic molded into a spiral shape. It actually looks like a fiddlehead, if you're familiar with that. It, to insert it, it was unfurled so that it was straight, and then once it was inserted into the uterus, it would return to its coil shape. Around this time, a particularly popular method was the lips loop, which was a squiggly-looking piece of plastic with a nylon string at the end that allowed for removal and also location identification. It was in the plastic IUD resurgence that the Dalkin shield was developed. It was released to the market in 1970. Compared to modern IUDs, the Dalkin shield is huge. It's very flat, but it's 2.3 centimeters wide. 
It looks like a bug with sort of a shield-shaped center and then five little legs on each side. The rationale behind it was that it was shaped like a uterus so that it would be more snug up against the uterine walls and also that the legs on the side would help it stick to the uterus. However, because the Dalkin shield stuck so well in the uterus, it needed a thicker cord to be able to pull it out. Again, all I can think of is the agony of this thing going in and coming out. It's like a nightmare. Anyway, this is potentially where the problem began. Instead of using the single nylon filament like the Lips Loop, the Delkin Shield used several filaments braided together. There's a lot of research on this, some of which is contradictory, but from what I could deduce, the Delkin Shield was not very effective at preventing pregnancy compared to some other forms of IUD. The first study on it actually had a major flaw that was not reported until later. The users who were testing the Dalkin Shield were told to use spermicide on days 10 to 17 of their menstrual cycle, and this was not reported. So when people were using it and not using spermicide, they were more likely to become pregnant. When people became pregnant, the cords attached to the Dalkin Shield would sometimes shift and enter the uterus. It was shown in some studies that the braided cords had significantly more bacteria in the braid junctions that was just not present in the single string cords. This bacteria would then enter the sterile uterus and cause an infection. This may have also happened in non-pregnant people as well, that the bacteria would get into the uterus. When this happened, pelvic inflammatory disease and even sepsis could occur. Multiple women died from pelvic inflammatory disease and sepsis while using the Dalkin Shield. As this first evidence started surfacing, the FDA, which did not start regulating IUDs until after the creation of the Dalkin Shield, stated that there was not sufficient evidence that the Dalkin Shield was the problem. The FDA advocated for more rigorous scientific studies to be conducted. What that means is they meant they should continue placing these devices that were possibly killing people into people's bodies. Now, with all research, there are ethical costs and benefits that have to be weighed. Yes, we need well-designed, controlled studies with good data to determine if medications or medical devices are harmful. But if the cost is people dying, then maybe the studies just can't be done. Especially in the case of contraception, where there was an alternative, like condoms or the birth control pill. With all pharmacological and medical device research, it is a careful balance. If someone has a disease that is harming them and can cause death itself, in some cases, participating in a study of an experimental drug is their only hope and is worth the risk of death from the drug. But in medical studies, when people start dying, usually the study is then checked to see if the deaths are being caused by the drug or if people in the placebo group are also dying, in which case it is not caused by the drug. Often, Drugs and devices used in the U.S. are first tested on poorer countries. Once those trials have gone okay in those poorer countries, they're brought to the U.S., and the tests are often done on poorer people in that country, too. Drug trials pay good money, and for someone with no money, the risk of death or other complications might seem worth it for $3,000 or $5,000 to participate in a drug trial. There's a lot of exploitation that happens in this industry to get drugs tested and approved. But I digress. Although the FDA thought people should keep getting Dalkin Shields in order to conduct studies on them, more and more lawsuits were piling up, so the manufacturers pulled the Dalkin Shield from the market in 1974. 
Shortly thereafter, other IUD manufacturers in the U.S. also stopped producing them for fear of lawsuits. While most of the research supports the idea that the Dalkin shields were more risky than other forms of IUDs in the 70s, there is some research challenging that claim. Pelvic inflammatory disease is a risk, although very low, of all IUDs. It didn't matter then, because in the view of the public in the 70s, all IUDs were seen as risky and dangerous, and usage dropped dramatically. I'll post data showing the pattern of usage in Canada and the U.S. over the years on the Do We Know Things Instagram and Twitter account. So the reason that IUDs have fluctuated in popularity in the U.S. and Canada is largely because of the lawsuits, bad press, and withdrawal of many IUDs from the market. The modern T-shaped IUDs were developed in the mid-60s, and the goal again was to have something that would better fit into the uterus so it wouldn't fall out. Since the inside of an empty uterus is kind of shaped like a T, that was the next step. The Copper T IUD was developed in a collaboration between an American researcher, Dr. Howard Tatum, and a Chilean researcher, Dr. Jaime Zipper, the latter of whom had done research on the properties of copper as a contraceptive in other species. Although they developed the concept in 1965 and published a paper on it in 1969, a version of the copper T IUD didn't come to market until 1974, right as the IUD reputation was being destroyed. I was also shocked to find out that the hormonal IUD, the one that releases progesterone as a way to reduce heavy periods and suppress ovulation, was first developed in 1976. I don't even remember hearing about such a thing until like the mid-2000s. Currently in Canada and the U.S., both the copper T and the hormonal IUDs are in use and are increasing in popularity. Most of what I'm talking about today, with the exception of the odoring, focuses on IUDs in Canada and the U.S. In other areas of the world, including much of Asia and parts of Africa, the history has been much different. In data from the 2019 United Nations Contraceptive Survey of 195 countries, the numbers from some Asian countries and several of those African countries show one-third or more of reproductively aged women using IUDs pretty consistently since the UN started tracking the data. If you're a big data nerd like me, you can also just Google the 2019 United Nations Contraceptive Survey, uh, and I'll also post a link to it in the script for this week's episode. You can find that at doweknowthings.com slash episodes. So fast forward to me living in Austin, Texas in 2010. Suddenly, everyone I know is getting an IUD. As a UT Austin graduate student, my health insurance granted me an IUD completely free of cost, if it was inserted at the campus health center. I remembered the warnings about IUDs, and I looked into it a little bit at the time, and the evidence seemed pretty reassuring. Current data on IUDs show that they are very safe and also the most effective method of preventing pregnancy, tied with sterilization. The latest data, published in the book Contraceptive Technology, show that copper T IUDs are 99.4% effective and hormonal IUDs are 99.9% effective at preventing pregnancy. As of 2011, in Canada, 12% of women in a relationship with a man report using an IUD as a method of contraception. Armed with this knowledge, after 10 years of being on oral contraceptives, I jumped on the copper IUD bandwagon. I had a Paragard IUD inserted in May 2010. We are now approaching our 10th anniversary, which also means it's time for me to get it removed. And I'm really going to miss it. 
For me, the IUD has been the greatest thing that has ever happened to me. However, getting it inserted was one of the worst things that ever happened to me. It was inserted by a nurse practitioner who said she spent most of her days inserting IUDs and she was definitely a pro. At the first visit, she explained the whole process of insertion as well as the risks and benefits. She also gave me a prescription for misoprostol, which helps to soften the cervix. You may remember this from our previous episode on abortion because it's also used for abortions. The day of the insertion, I inserted the mesoprostol tablet into my vagina so it could relax my cervix, and I headed to my appointment. Fortunately, there was a nurse there who was temping, but who usually worked as a labor and delivery nurse. This turned out to be apparently exactly what I needed. I'm now going to describe in somewhat graphic detail the process of insertion. Feel free to skip forward if you don't want to hear this. The first step is to insert a speculum so the clinician can see the cervix easily. Then a clamp-type thing goes on the cervix to hold it in place. You can tell I am not a doctor. Then the worst part, which is the insertion of a thin cylinder to measure the depth and angle of the uterus. And this is where I completely freaked out. (laughs) I was reclined at about a a 45-degree angle, uh, with my butt kind of hanging off the edge of the table like you do for a pap test, and every time the nurse practitioner attempted to insert the cylinder into my cervix, I completely freaked out and started wiggling up the table away from her. And every time I was like, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I won't do it this time. And then I just kept doing it. Um, The nurse who was in the room, who was the labor and delivery nurse, was holding my hand, trying to calm me down, explaining she was a labor and delivery nurse and that she could help me with some breathing techniques. And then when it finally went in, I was like, this is like giving birth in reverse. Um, Very dramatically. Like I actually yelled that in the middle of the clinic. Um, And then it was removed. The whole thing, once it was inserted, took like one second. Um, And I definitely made it way worse by wiggling away and freaking out. But the final step was to actually insert another sunder cylinder that contains the IUD. And then it's in. Different people have different experiences, some of which are definitely worse than mine. I had some minor cramping for about a day, and then I basically forgot I even had this weird new device in my body. One of the things that you need to do with an IUD is regularly check the strings. The strings should be left pretty long when they're inserted, and they'll slowly curl up and around your cervix over time. One of my friend's doctors actually cut her strings really short, and that resulted in poking her partner's penis every time they had sex. Longer strings prevent penis stabbing. That's a motto to live by. The recommendation is to check your strings once a month, but I went several months without checking mine because I couldn't quite figure out how to do it. Like, I would put my fingers up there, but I couldn't seem to reach my cervix. And I had a speculum and a mirror. I could have just looked at them, but I was determined to figure out how to do this with my own hands. (laughs) Finally, One night, months after I had left Austin and was living in Sackville, I was FaceTiming with my friend Nancy, who also had an IUD. I explained to her my issue that I hadn't been able to reach my cervix and feel my strings yet, uh, and she kindly offered to coach me how to do it over the phone. So I turned around my phone so she couldn't see me, (laughs) put a leg up on my office chair, uh, and she explained like step by step that you insert your finger, like you have to get behind the pubic bone, which is kind of like the shelf, right? Um, And then if you just get around that pubic bone, you should be able to feel the cervix up to the top. And she was right. I did. And I was so grateful that she walked me through that over the phone. uh, And this is why I love her. 
Overall, I've had an amazing experience with my IUD, but that is not the case for everyone. For starters, I consented to having mine inserted. In many places, some poor and racialized women are coerced into getting long-term contraceptives like IUDs against their will. Sometimes it's even done to them without their explicit consent or knowledge. And then there's a long history of sterilization of poor, indigenous, black, disabled, and people from other marginalized communities in Canada and the U.S. This is violence. Reproductive justice means that everyone has a right to control their reproductive lives, and this includes the right to have and to not have children. There are still a lot of misconceptions around IUDs that I want to quickly address here. Most of these misconceptions do come from past medical literature. For example, it was once widely stated that people who haven't given birth should not use IUDs. There is no reason for this. Historically, there were a few reasons given. For example, the risk of pelvic inflammatory disease that could make people sterile. They didn't want people getting an IUD and then becoming sterile and not being able to have children. The risk of perforation of the uterus. And also the thought that the os for women who hadn't given birth was too small and it wouldn't be able to be inserted. The risks of pelvic inflammatory disease and perforation are very low, and the os size is really a non-issue since the procedure has been performed on millions of people who haven't given birth around the world. Another related rumor is that people with multiple sex partners shouldn't use IUDs. The older research from the 70s and 80s really hammers this home. There is talk of only prescribing them to married women because the sexual behavior of non-married women is just too risky. One paper even referred to unmarried women as just high-risk women. There was some concern that people who get STIs and have an IUD may have higher risk of pelvic inflammatory disease than people without an IUD. But the data on pelvic inflammatory disease does not support this, since the majority of people presenting at hospitals with this disease do not have IUDs. I'm curious if there are other things you've heard about IUDs that I have missed here. I would love to address them in a future episode. You can email me at doweknowthings at gmail.com. Of course, there are still some risks associated with IUDs. Some people with copper IUDs experience a lot of cramping and pain after insertion and also during their periods. For some, it makes their periods heavier and more painful. One solution to heavy bleeding and period cramps is the hormonal IUDs, such as the Mirena. Hormonal IUDs should reduce bleeding and, for many people, stop their periods altogether after a while. While the hormonal IUDs usually result in less cramping and bleeding, for some people, not having a regular period can be really stressful. There's also a small risk of perforation of the uterus. It's about one in a thousand. This is also one reason why it's important to have someone who's very skilled insert your IUD, and a reason to check your strings regularly. If there is a perforation, the strings can move along with the IUD. Sometimes the perforation can lead to severe problems, and sometimes it doesn't cause harm. Overall, the risks of IUDs are still pretty low compared to other contraceptive methods. Another issue with IUDs is is that they can still be expelled from the uterus. A large review estimated that within three years of having an IUD, approximately 4% of people expel them. In general, the evidence seems to point to IUDs having more benefits than risks. Copper IUDs can be left in for up to 10 years, and the hormonal ones are about 5 years. 
IUDs can be expensive, around three or $400, but they're also covered by many insurance plans. And there are sexual, psychological, and physical benefits to having a reliable, long-acting contraceptive method. The hormonal IUDs have synthetic progestogens in them. Oral contraceptives usually have both estrogens and progestogens, and some people cannot tolerate the estrogen component. If you're someone who does not do well on hormonal pills, but like the reduced bleeding and cramping that goes along with them, the hormonal IUD might be something to discuss with your doctor. The hormones are also more localized because they're being released in your uterus, and they have less systemic effects than taking pills. IUDs are also okay to use when breastfeeding. Hormonal contraceptives, specifically the estrogens in them, can interfere with breast milk production, so they're not recommended while breastfeeding. IUDs are a good solution to birth control while breastfeeding. And while it is true that exclusively breastfeeding an infant suppresses ovulation and often prevents pregnancy, it is not a foolproof method, so a backup is a good idea. Do you have an IUD? Or have you had one in the past? I would love to hear about your experiences, positive or negative. Again, you can email me at doweknowthings at gmail.com. On today's episode, we've covered a lot of ground on IUDs. I set out to figure out what went wrong in the 70s to make them fall out of favor, and it seems that unsafe devices and lawsuits are the answer. I feel like I have a better understanding of IUDs and the problems that plagued them in the U.S. and that spilled over into Canada. As I have said repeatedly, I have an intense love of IUDs. An IUD is certainly not for everyone, though. If you're someone who already has painful periods, a copper IUD probably is not the way to go. But a hormonal IUD or other hormonal methods such as the pill might be. If you don't feel comfortable checking your strings regularly, it also might not be for you. If you do decide you're interested in one, please make sure the person inserting it has lots of experience doing so. Gynecologists and sexual health clinics, such as Planned Parenthoods, are often good places to access experienced providers. And it's okay to ask your provider how much experience they have with IUD insertion. IUDs are safe and the most effective, non-permanent way to prevent pregnancy. Of course, they do not offer any protection against sexually transmitted infections, so it's important to also use condoms or other barrier methods when having sex with people whose STI status is not known. That's all for this week's episode. If you have any feedback or peer review of this episode, I'm always excited to hear from you. You can send a voice memo recorded on your phone or just a written email to doweknowthings at gmail.com. You can find a script for this episode, along with references and extra info, on my website at doweknowthings.com. All music and sounds in this episode are by Jeremy Dahl. You can check him out at Pale Blue Dot. Script assistance by Matt Tunnicliffe. I'm Lisa Don Hamilton. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at doweknowthings, and you can email me at doweknowthings at gmail.com. Do We Know Things is released every second Monday, and you can find it anywhere you get your podcasts. Of course, I would love it if you could subscribe and rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time on Do We Know Things.